Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Curtis McElhaney. Curtis is a very recently retired goaltender who played 250 National Hockey League games for eight teams over his career, but has a very unique perspective. He won two Stanley Cups with the Tampa Bay Lightning, backing up current goalie Andre Vasilevsky, and he also played for our Toronto Maple Leafs alongside many of our current boys, including Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, and Morgan Riley. So let's jump right into this. Welcome, Curtis, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Uh, thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm uh, located in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, catching up on all the skiing that I missed out while I was playing hockey over those 16 years professionally. So making up for a lot of lost time, I guess. How is life in Steamboat Springs, Colorado? And how'd you end up there post-hockey? Uh, life is terrific. It's uh, Like I said, I, I've loved to ski. I haven't been able to do it for quite some time. So um, I'm making sure I make up for that. Um, the reason we ended up here is my wife and I both went to school in Colorado Springs at Colorado College. So, And I've always wanted to live in the mountains. And I'm not going to lie, I think the weather's a a little bit nicer down here in Colorado than it sometimes is up in Canada, so I'm enjoying the four seasons versus maybe just two. Excellent. Well, I have to ask you, what is the vibe right now in Denver and the surrounding areas? The defending Stanley Cup champion Avalanche are in a much tougher than expected first round battle with the Seattle Kraken. What's the feeling out there? I think everybody's kind of on pins and needles. I mean, it was such an exciting year last year for the Avs and to get to watch them kind of accomplish a a long uh, lifetime goal for a lot of those guys was pretty special. So as far as fans go, I think uh, everybody's a little nervous right now. I know they've they've had uh, some lineup changes that have and some injuries that have kind of hurt their cause a little bit. So uh, we'll see how it plays out, but it's certainly an entertaining series. And how did you uh, follow last year? Of course, Nazan Kadri, another London boy, he brought the cup back to London. Uh, that must have been exciting. And did you watch that closely? Yeah, I was watching that series. Obviously, uh, last year was my first year out of retirement, so uh, still a lot of strong connections to the game. Uh, a lot of players that I was very familiar with, uh, you know, especially with Nas going at it there. And but you know, anytime you get an opportunity to see a new team win it, some new players win it that have never experienced that before, I'm I'm all for that. So it's uh, it's such a special trophy, and to be a part of a group like that, uh, you know, I was fortunate to, enough to do it in Tampa. Uh, it was it was kind of special to watch the Avs do it last year. Now, Curtis, on this podcast, we do our very best to keep the content evergreen, which is to say not pegged to a particular moment in time, and thus it's still fresh and listenable anytime in the future. Having said that, it would be foolish of me not to take advantage of your very unique perspectives on the very current Maple Leafs versus Lightning first-round playoff battle. You did, as I mentioned, back up current Lightning goalie Andre Vasilevsky, winning two cups with Tampa in 2020 and 2021. And you also played goalie for our Maple Leafs as recently as 2018. And as I mentioned, you in fact played alongside Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Riley. How closely have you been watching this particular series and what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a tough series to watch. I mean, obviously there, there's close connections on both teams. You know, anytime you're a part of a group that puts a ring on your finger, you, you're a little biased in that respect. So you know, I have a soft spot for Tampa, but at the same time, you know, you're watching the evolution of some elite young players kind of come into their own here in their mid-20s. And, you know, there are some adjustments made to that roster 
at the trade deadline that have kind of bolstered that team. And I think we're seeing that pay dividends, especially here in the last two games that we've watched in Tampa. So, you know, I, I don't want to say that I cheer specifically for teams or organizations, but more individuals because, uh, you know, there there's close connections, like I said, on, on both of those teams. So I'm, this is really win-win either way, but man, I feel bad for, you know, those players that lose. And it's once you go a full 82 game season and you end up uh, losing, whether that be the first round or even in the finals, it's a it's a pretty heartbreaking thing. Well, I found it very interesting. In, in game two, when the Leafs were blowing out the Bolts, uh, Vasilevsky apparently refused to be pulled for current backup Brian Elliott. He will not give up that net. Did you have similar experiences uh, with him in, in the sense of, do you find him to be a collaborative and supportive teammate, or is just that the way he is and not to be taken personally when he doesn't want to give up the net? Yeah, I mean, I've never looked at it personally, and I would say if we go back to the bubble when we were in Toronto there, and there was, I think, three to four exhibition games, more or less, uh, before the plan was to get me into some action in the event that, you know, Vassie gets hurt and I need to step in there. Now, when those opportunities came and Cooper would go towards Vassie and ask him, hey, can we get Mac in there for the third period? We'd like to just get him a few minutes. He would just kind of brush me off. And it's you know, it has nothing to do with disrespect or, or anything like that. He's, he was a very supportive teammate. And when it was my opportunity to play, he was, he was all in on that. But that being said, you know, there, there's only one net and, you know, when you're, you're playing at the highest level and, you know, whether that be in the NHL as a league or you're competing for an Olympic position, maybe down the road, every opportunity to step on the ice is an opportunity to showcase that you're the best. And, you know, I, I will say that the Russian goalies that I've encountered have a very similar mindset, and I don't think I'd want to be sitting in an Olympic setting between those Russian goalies as they're fighting for that one net. But, um, you know, and then the other thing about that kind of that blowout game where he shrugged off coming out of the net, you know, to me, I look at it from the perspective that says, I'm a leader on this team. My team is struggling right now. I'm not going to get out of this net and escape the pain. I'm I'm going down with the ship like a captain. So that's kind of how I perceived it. You can spin it, I guess, whatever way you want. And that's that's part of media's job. But, you know, from my perspective, it says that, hey, we're in this together and, and I'm not going to jump ship. Now, you mentioned Lightning bench boss John Cooper. He's certainly considered a top-tier coach. He's got the championships to prove it. What was his coaching style? And how did that work for you, Curtis, in your backup role in particular? Yeah, I think with Coop, you know, he's he's a great manager in in regards to personalities. So anytime you're in a professional sports setting, uh, you have individuals that are getting paid a lot of money and uh, are very good at their job. And, you know, there, there's egos that come with that. And that's not a knock on, on any of the players in Tampa. It's just the reality is that there there's big personalities in sports and in any setting like that. So I will say what John is really good at it is he's really good at managing those personalities and making sure that that ship is being steered in the right direction. And I think the one thing that, you know, when you see him on the bench or at a press conference or anywhere really in a public setting, he always seems to kind of be in control, right? You don't, you don't see him getting too amped up too much. Maybe we'll, we'll say that's a little bit different this year with some of the penalties that are being called, but I think every coach could argue the same thing. So uh, he always seems to be kind of cool, calm, and collected. And when you were with the Leafs, it was still the Mike Babcock era as coach. What was his coaching style, and how did that work for you, again, in your in your backup role in particular? Yeah, it was very, 
very black and white. I think uh, the games that I were playing were all back-to-back scenarios, and I think Mike had a very authoritarian style that he let me know when and where I was going to play, and that really wasn't subject to change unless someone was injured. So, And that's a good thing, too. I think you know everybody kind of knows where they stand. You know, as far as the in-game antics and anything like that, I I just tried to kind of keep my distance, make sure that I was doing the job that was asked of me, and hopefully we didn't have too many run-ins in the hallway. So, yeah. Um, but you know, in all in all fairness, it it was a good working relationship that I had with Mike in my time in Toronto. Well, let's look at one level above the coaches in Toronto. You played under the leadership of Lou Lamorello, Brendan Shanahan. They asked the fans to trust the Shanna plan. This was the era before Kyle Dubas took over as GM. I believe he was the assistant GM at the time. How much interaction would you have had with management or the suits? Uh, Very little during my time there. You know, I I think it may be a little bit different with Kyle. Um, Certainly a a younger professional coming into the world of hockey, even though he's growing up in it, I think he's taking a different approach. I think that's beneficial, especially for the younger players that are coming in. You know, there, there's a change from kind of that old school mentality where your coach is that authoritarian, just he's going to yell and scream at you until he gets what he wants out of you, to now it's more of a conversation-based thing where coaches and managers are trying to understand where players are coming from. So I think the, the two worlds, I, I didn't really have the opportunity to work with Kyle too long. It was a very short-lived experience. Um, but I think he's bringing a, a newer, younger approach to the game that is probably very beneficial for those younger players. Well, in that same vein, your time in Tampa, current GM Julian Brisebois had already taken over for Stevie Y, Steve Weiserman. What was Julian's management style, and, and what were your interactions like with him? Ah, uh, terrific. I, I think, you know, Julian's one of those people that really cares about the person. And, you know, that's a, that's a difficult thing to say in any professional sports world because... The reality is it's a, what have you done for me lately? And you're only as good as your last game. So it's tough to do that. And there's hard decisions that have to be made at at critical points in order to make sure your organization and team is heading in the right direction. But I will say that, you know, Julian's thing is you call me any, any time of day, if you ever need anything. And that's even extends to me now, uh, once my career is wrapped up, I have no affiliation with the association that it's, hey, you need anything, you give me a shout. And so I will say that he is very, very good and very thoughtful in that regard. I cannot imagine two more diverse hockey environments to play in. You got Toronto, the center of the hockey universe, where there has not been a first-round win in 19 years, no championships in 56 years, versus Tampa Bay, Florida, where you can watch a game in your board shorts and then immediately hit the beach afterwards. Different, but fun. Those two environments for you. Toronto is just a unique place. So I was coming from a smaller market team in Columbus when I got there. And there's just this electricity in the air when you're playing for an original six franchise. And obviously, uh, the team was making a transition into being a more competitive team, trying to get back into the playoffs. Now, I'm sure the the energy is a little bit different because it's, hey, we need to get out of the first round. We need to start making that push that all good teams do. So, But as far as playing for an electric, original six team it, it doesn't get any better and there's there's just an energy that you feel when you're walking in and around that arena when you're driving to games uh it's a special place it's something that i hold near and dear to get that opportunity to have played there and then you know you're transitioning down to tampa 
just a just an interesting place because they've been so successful for the last 10 plus years so they've built up this tremendous fan base and i believe when they won their stanley cup in 04 the lockout followed suit so they didn't have the ability to really build on what they had started and the, the team changed over quite a bit and then there was kind of some tougher years and then all of a sudden 2010 hits and you know that team's up and rolling and contending for a spot again so they've got a great fan base they've been incredibly spoiled down there uh, due to drafting uh, smart management decisions and just bringing the right players in uh, and some mid-round picks that have really panned out well so the fans are fortunate they're blessed they they're all in on it but like you said you know you're you're walking to the game you could be on the beach in the morning and you're going to a hockey game at night so it's a it's a special place and as a player it's tough to beat that lifestyle you know i i recall i lived just outside of downtown on an island and i would scooter to the rink for game oh. you know that's how nice it was so it's 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 special i mean it's it's hard to compare the two I don't have a favorite one over the other. I mean, growing up, obviously, it's all about, wow, this is a team I used to watch on Hockey Night in Canada uh, regularly, so that was special to me. Well, I uh, I can imagine with the fan base there, we kind of perceive it as all Canadian roots or transplants or snowbirds. What, what was the fan base in Tampa as you saw it? A lot of people that have moved down there and really just kind of gone all in. You know, I, I think if we look at the Bucks and the Rays, there hasn't been a lot else to buy into. So they're kind of on an island in that regard. And the success doesn't hurt. You know, that obviously brings people into the building. The ownership group is phenomenal. I think they've done a really good job of kind of building that fan base up. You know, a lot of people, if they're moving down from Canada, it's like, hey, I can go to a hockey game for, let's just say, half the price of what it may cost me in Toronto. So that's never a bad thing either. Yeah, for sure. Well, enough Tampa and Toronto talk. Let's talk about you, our featured guest. Let's go all the way back, get the Curtis McElhaney story. Where were you born and describe your upbringing? I grew up in uh, London, Ontario and lived there for the first 12 years. Typical uh, minor hockey life, just kind of trending in the right direction, making the good teams for the most part. Dad was coaching, helping out until a certain point. So very simple childhood, just very fortunate, obviously, to get to play the game. We all know how expensive that can get, especially as a goaltender. And then when I was 12, we moved out west to Calgary, and that was kind of an experience where you were the new kid on the block and you didn't have the connections that sometimes, uh, we'll say, are required to play on some of the better teams. So, uh, you know, my wheels were kind of spinning when I got out there, so it was a little bit of a transition that led to some other opportunities down the road, but yeah, moving was probably one of the hardest things that I did when I was younger. And if I'm not mistaken, you played a season of Junior A at the very well-known Notre Dame Hounds program in Wilcox, Saskatchewan, home to Leafs alumni such as Wendell Clark, Kent Manderville. Was that the place you kind of got going before transitioning over to your university career at Colorado College? Yes, it was. And, you know, that was the opportunity that I kind of alluded to is that once we moved out west to Calgary and, you know, as far as hockey going, I wasn't really trending in the right direction. I was I was being cut from teams that I thought I was qualified to make, but, you know, sometimes those are the decisions that get made. So uh, I ended up at Notre Dame in Wilcox, Saskatchewan there and played three years there, got some breaks along the way and ended up playing junior hockey my uh, senior year before I took off for Colorado College. And what was the experience like playing at for a U.S. 
college program. I guess today it's even different, the major junior route versus the university college route. You kind of got a taste of both. Yeah, I uh, took a look quickly at uh, playing in Moose Jaw. They had my rights for the WHL, so uh, I went to a camp there before my grade 12 year of school. You know, there there are situations when you're aware of them, you knew that you weren't mentally ready to kind of handle what major junior hockey was all about. So for me, I felt far more comfortable going back to Notre Dame, graduating my grade 12 year, getting an opportunity to play on their junior team, which opened some doors at the collegiate level down south. So my parents have always kind of stressed education, even though it wasn't a priority for me. I was just content stopping pucks, and I thought there was going to be no other thing that I would do in my life. So obviously very naive in that regard, but you know, as a goaltender or any hockey player, I'm sure if you've talked to a youth player, you'll, they'll say the same thing. I'm going to play in the NHL, right? Um, so my parents stressed the education. So that was a priority, uh, secondary thing for myself, but you know, it ended up working out very well, got an opportunity to go down, look at a few schools and settled on Colorado colleges. It was a smaller liberal arts school with about 1900 kids. I think when I attended it. From there, Curtis, you were drafted 176th overall, sixth round in the 2002 NHL draft by the Calgary Flames. What was the buzz leading up to draft day? What were your expectations? And then what was the actual draft day like for you? Very little expectation. So how it all went down is, like I said, we were living in Calgary at the time. I think I had played my freshman year at Colorado College. I had only played a handful of games, got a little bit of recognition in terms of the draft rankings. But my dad took me out on this fishing trip to BC to one of those floating lodges. And the draft took place during that. And Calgary was actually the only team that I ever spoke to. It was outside Father David Bauer Arena, north in Calgary. So there wasn't a lot of expectations. And I was fishing and we had no cell phone service or anything like that. So I found out a couple days after the draft had passed that I had been drafted by the Flames. So very exciting. Obviously, it's one of those things I got home. You go down to the rink, they give you the jersey, they give you some gear, all that fun stuff. And, you know, in your mind, you just start thinking, oh, well, I'm going to be the starting goalie of the Calgary Flames before you know it, right? And so, you know, it was an honor. I mean, things in Calgary didn't work out the way I had expected them to, but such is life. Well, that's for sure. Life takes all kinds of paths. You did make your pro debut with Calgary's American Hockey League affiliate, night 2005, with the Omaha Aksar Ben Knights playing at the time out of Omaha, Nebraska. Sorry for my ignorance, Curtis. Why were they called the Axar Ben Knights? Well, I think if I remember correctly, if you're leaving Nebraska, it spells Nebraska backwards in your room here. So... Well, well, well. Yeah. There, you know, that, that is a drawing fact. <laughs> you're, I guess you're right. When we hear Omaha, we do think of the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett. What was it like playing pro hockey in uh, Nebraska? Uh, I will say for anyone that's never visited, Omaha is a fabulous city. Just a great little town. The rink at the time was the Civic Center, which was located downtown. I believe it's been torn down now. But that area is obviously a hot spot for sports. And I think there were two junior teams on either side of the city. Essentially, there's one down the road in Lincoln, Nebraska. You had the University of Nebraska football team and all their sports, Creighton basketball right in town there. So it was really a great little sports town, a place that I was like, I I could see myself living here long term. Very interesting. 
Well, you did end up making your NHL debut October 22nd, 2007 against the San Jose Sharks. You were relieving Mika Kiprasov. Yikes, Curtis, you're sitting there on the bench enjoying the game, minding your own business, and, and suddenly you are in making your debut. How well do you remember it? And uh, that must have been quite a thing to come in in the middle of the game. Yeah, it's um, it's always surreal when those opportunities kind of get presented to you in, in certain um goalies have scenarios where they get pulled other ones will stay in as we talked about Vassy's never coming out of the net Kip had a unique situation I believe Sutter Brent was our coach at the time and they had a deal worked out that Kip would only come out when he him and Brent agreed on it so they would have a conversation and this took place after the second period he'd given up six goals and I think he said I just had enough it was a meaningless regular season game so you know, he comes back after having his meeting in the coach's office and he looks at me and he says, Mac, you're in. Well, you know, the tough part about that situation was I was coming back off an MCL sprain. So I had my leg taped literally from my ankle all the way up to my waist. And if I recall, the game sheet is located somewhere in a shed somewhere around my house here. But the stat line is essentially I had one shot, one goal against, and it was scored by Jeremy Roenick in front of the net. So uh, or Ryan Close, sorry, it was a pass from Ronick, but I had one turnover, one shot on net, one goal against, and I was on a plane the next day back down to Quad Cities. I think they had switched their farm team over. So uh, a memorable experience, to say the least. Maybe we'll keep the stat sheet in the shed for now. Yeah. <laughs> well, Curtis, you cycled through a bunch of NHL teams, eventually claimed by the Toronto Maple Leafs, who were in need of a backup following a, a very disappointing season by Jonas Enroth. In fact, though, down the stretch, you were very solid, and when starter Frederick Anderson went down with an injury, you saved their spot in the 2017 playoffs, second-last game of the season, with a playoff spot literally on the line. You made arguably the biggest save of your career, dying seconds, sliding across the crease, stopping a one-timer by none other than someone you may have heard of, Sid the Kid Crosby. This preserved the one-goal victory that eventually held up to earn the Maple Leafs a playoff berth, and this was after years of not even making the playoffs. Forget about winning a round. Puck in for a moment. Sheary bats at it. Centering pass. Cosby. Great save. McElhaney. That might be the save of the season for backup Curtis McElhaney on Sidney Cosby. Wow. And what a reaction from the fans here. McElhaney saves his best for the dying seconds. So many years, so many games, but do you remember that particular save? Yeah, and I'm reminded all the time, obviously from Toronto fans, it's it's a memory that, you know, Austin Matthews has just been recently drafted. I believe it was his first season. So uh, there was a lot of hype starting to build in the, in the city. And I, I think the expectations were growing that this team was going to get back into the playoffs. So it certainly came down to the wire. And, you know, if you look at those, oh, shoot moments where you're like, oh, this did not need to happen right now. Freddie, you're fine. Get up, buddy. Finish the game for me, please. Uh, you know, you, as a backup goalie, your heart rate goes through the roof, and there's you know, no amount of preparation that will prepare you to jump into that. It's more you just dive in and you hope for the best, right? And so that whole save situation, the way it played out, it you know, in the game of hockey, things move so fast that it's really hard to comprehend. But anytime I've gone back and looked at it, people have sent me highlights of it it's one of those things where it's like yeah it's a career defining moment and it, if I'm remembered for anything it's probably the save forget the Stanley Cups it's the save 
you know, that Toronto fan base is enormous and, you know, they've, they've just been dying to get back into the playoffs and to really make a good push. So it stands out to a lot of people. It's a special moment that I cherish from my career, something that I'm, I'm really proud of. Obviously it was, it was a pivotal moment and, you know, it's fun to rewatch it. Absolutely. You stood up to the challenge. It was the save of the season. I encourage listeners to not only go on Google and look for the save, but what's interesting is the TVs immediately after your save, they went up to the Leafs uh, brass in the box. Kyle Dubas and Cliff Fletcher look so happy that they it's like they just won the lottery. Lou Lamorello did not even crack a smile, but I think that's his uh, brand. So, Yeah, that's, that's Lou right there in a nutshell. And I think I would agree with you. That's probably my favorite part is just you know, the, the immediate cut rate to the fans that are there attending the game live, you know, the, the management box and, and seeing everyone's reaction. And then knowing that there was still probably, maybe it was it a minute or so to go before the game was actually over. So there were some big plays that took place afterwards, a couple key shot blocks as I was swimming around in the crease like a fish. Well, Curtis McElhenney on Sidney Crosby and Ken Reggett on Gino Cavallini. For me, those are the top two in uh, modern-day Leafs history. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got Anders Hedberg, Elvis Stoiko, Bob Ray, Basil Donovan, and Evan Solomon. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. When Garrett Sparks won the backup job for the Leafs, which many fans did not agree with, your two-year tenure with the Leafs ended, you went to Carolina, and then Tampa Bay. As much pain as you were part of causing for us here in Toronto, we must congratulate you and discuss your back-to-back Stanley Cups in 2020-2021. One of the championships was awesome, and one was won during the COVID season when you were stuck in a bubble. Safe to say these were two totally different championship experiences. Yeah, I mean, really just looking back on it, it's it's kind of remarkable to think that that wasn't that long ago in regards to what happened to the world, right? And, you know, I, I can recall, I think we were playing Philadelphia, we were at home in Tampa, and we came in and, and COVID had really just kind of broke for the most part. And I remember Cooper coming in and just saying, hey, the game's canceled right now. We'll just, we'll reconvene. We'll let you guys know. And you know, I, I know for the majority of professional athletes, they, they try and keep the news to a minimum. So we hadn't really been paying that close of attention. So I'll say naively that we probably thought it was just a two week thing and we'll be, we'll be back to business. And then before you know it, the season was canceled. Then the, the league was trying to come up with a way to kind of salvage the playoffs to try and make some revenue to generate some interest and all that. So you have this weird situation where we're we're in this Hotel X, right? And I think it was the Fairmont was the other hotel that was located up in Toronto. And I had a sister who was actually up there at the time working in Toronto. So I do recall her coming to the fence line and trying to see her, even though it was completely barricaded off, the fence was at least 10 feet high, and trying to talk to her through the fence and just have some form of communication because the only way to really... Um, do anything was you were just interacting with the other players that were located in the bubble. So such a bizarre, I mean, you know, as a hockey player, all we wanted to do was play hockey, right? So very fortunate in that regard, all things considered what was going on in the world at the time. So 
to be able to kind of compete to make the most of it and the way that it was pulled off, I think was tremendous. It was just, it was such a huge endeavor to really put that all together and then have it come, come off. It was very strange being in an arena with nobody there and just kind of having that white noise, the fan noise being pumped into the arena. So that's something I'll never forget. So surreal. But then you did get to enjoy what we could call, I guess, a normal championship as well. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, the second time around was, was special. And, you know, anytime I talk about the differences between the two, I will say that winning the first title with Tampa in the bubble was very special. And it's almost one of those things that I hold a little bit closer because what we were able to do was celebrate with the group that had just spent 60 plus days together in a hotel and competing and winning when you have family, friends, and fans all in attendance is tremendous too, because you get to share that opportunity with them. But when you spend 82 game season, eight exhibition games, and potentially what, 28 more playoff games with a group, it's it's really nice that we got to share that opportunity with just that group for 24 hours. So that's probably my highlight of it, to be honest with you. Your two Stanley Cup rings, do you uh, wear them when you go to the convenience store or are they in a drawer? Or when, what do you do with those? Yeah, they're they're locked in a drawer. They're a little over the top, like any championship ring these days. So they they don't make it out too often unless there's a special request because they are kind of, I don't want to say gaudy. They're just, you know, it looks like you're wearing a softball on your finger. I mean, fabulous, fabulous job. The custom is for each member of the winning team to enjoy their own way to spend time with the Stanley Cup. Uh, did you have an opportunity and what did you do with Lord Stanley's mug? So I was a little hesitant. It actually just took place this last year in October. And I I wanted to kind of share that opportunity with the town that I live in here, Steamboat Springs. There's about 10,000 people that are here, full-time residents. We got a small little hockey community. But, you know, after the first one was won, there was a pretty quick turnaround before we came back to the next season. So with COVID going on, I wanted to be able to kind of share that opportunity with as many people as possible. So I asked if I could delay it and both the league and uh, Julian said, absolutely. You just reach out to us when you're ready and we'll make it happen. So I waited two full years before we, we actually had that event. And it was a full nonstop day from, I think, eight in the morning to 11, 11 at night. We went to every school in the city here and really kind of just got to put it in front of as many people as possible. That's fantastic. Apparently, Hulk Hogan is one of uh, the Lightning's biggest fans. Did you ever get to meet the man behind Hulkamania? And were there any other big-time celebrities in your championship wins in uh, Tampa Bay? I ne- I've never met Hulk. I didn't see him a whole lot. Uh, the one, I mean, obviously wrestling down in the Tampa area is a pretty big thing. I think it's kind of their home base, a little north of Tampa. Uh, Titus O'Neil is the one that is probably most prominent in terms of being around. And, you know, I, I was never really a wrestling fan growing up. I watched it a little bit as a kid, but I never really stuck with it. So it's it's not my scene. I think it's a really unique world. Obviously, growing up in Calgary, the, the Hart family is a, a big family in that area. So the names are always there. I just, I never really followed it. As far as other celebrities go, you know, there were a few baseball players that would come through Obviously, uh, for the first championship, our our one win song was Gravy Train. So we had Young Gravy hanging around, uh, which was interesting. 
But, you know, I think with any uh, sports team, there, there's always a few people that are coming and going, especially in a warm weather area like Tampa. So, um, but I would say wrestling is probably the number one people, group of people that are around that organization. Well, I don't know if it was fake news, Curtis, but apparently John Bon Jovi was hanging around the Leafs dressing room last night after the game. So we'll have to That's see cool. what his <laughs> linkages to the Maple Leafs. Let's talk about your retirement from playing. In the offseason, you were waiting for a phone call and had teams phoning you, to, but it wasn't offering you playing jobs. They were offering you coaching jobs. Thus, only a year and a half ago, September 2021, you announced your retirement in a very modern way via Instagram. Curtis, you have said that you effectively were retired without your consent. How'd you handle the fact that teams now wanted you to coach rather than play? And why didn't you take any of those coaching opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I, I always try and look at the lighter side of things, right? So I I have like a self-deprecating humor where I'll make a little bit of fun of myself in light of the whole situation and looking at the career. Uh, retirement was one of those things that I don't want to say it caught me off guard. I was 38 at the time. I probably should have been retired. It's a young man's game. So when the calls transition from, hey, we're interested in you as a player to, hey, how would you like to coach? You know, it's flattering to know that someone still wants you in some regard. So I won't take anything away from that. But yeah, it uh, it kind of shocked me a little bit. I am in coaching to this day. I, I coach youth hockey goalies out here in Colorado and online. It's it's uh, something I'm very passionate about that I love and I'll, I'll continue to do. The, you know, the reason that I chose not to pursue any coaching opportunities professionally was because you have to relocate your family. So I have two young kids. Uh, 14 and 12 now and been married for I believe 17 years so my wife and kids I played professionally for 16 years as I mentioned I think we moved combined 35 times in that span so um, I'm very efficient at packing up a U-Haul and driving across country and I think everyone in the family would agree that it would be nice to put down roots. So that was the main reason that we no longer pursued those opportunities. We'd done that for long enough and, you know, it was a wonderful time, but enough was enough. So uh, we settled down here in Colorado and we wanted to give the kids some roots and just an opportunity to kind of foster some relationships. You mentioned your sister. Fun fact, you do have a younger sister who is also an accomplished hockey goaltender. Do you want to give a shout out to Elena? Yeah, absolutely. So Alana, the youngest of the four in my family, is currently, as I mentioned, she was a lawyer in Toronto for a few years. Uh, so that was great when I was playing there. She was working. Uh, really neat to see her quite often. Then she's now located down in Austin, Texas, doing her thing. So um, she's probably the smartest one in the family. Good. And and she played uh, college hockey uh, Division One as well. Yes, yes. She was out at Bemidji State. Curtis, did you keep any of your college or NHL jerseys or any other interesting memorabilia? I've kept a few masks. Uh, the jerseys, I have most of the jerseys. As you alluded to, I, I think I was eight teams. You know, I, I will count. I doubled down in Tampa. I stopped off for 12 hours, I think around 2011. So uh, I actually have two jerseys from Tampa. But there's I don't have a big enough house to hang all the jerseys that I have due to my suitcase job when I was performing. So... You know, there are quite a few. Most of them are just kind of hanging up in a, a garment box for the most part. We've talked a little about your time in Toronto, but as you know, we can never get enough Toronto talk. 76 brave men have played goaltender for the Leafs since the last championship in 1967. 
Of course, growing up in London, in Ontario, you know what it's all about. You played for so many different organizations, and I do realize Pittsburgh was uh, your favorite team growing up. But what was it like to throw on the jersey of the Toronto Maple Leafs? I was special. I mean, you know, they have, we wore the arenas jersey a few times, the St. Pat's jersey. You know, the Leafs had just kind of redone their logo when I got in there. Uh, they were trying to rebrand the team a little bit and just kind of bring it up to date. So very special to put on an original six jersey. And I'm sure that goes for every other team in that original six. Having been an Ontario kid and growing up, you know, as you said, the Leafs were not my favorite team by any means. I was a Penguins fan. Uh, I grew up with Mario and Yager and all those guys that were winning championships and competitive at that time. But to wear the Leafs jersey, it was an honor and, you know, certainly a highlight of my journey through those 16 years. Well, it's uh, kind of odd to talk about a retiree at your age, but whether you want to be reminded of it or not, the internet says you're one month away from the big 4 any uh, thoughts and feelings on this life marker, Curtis? Yeah, it's uh, it's just a number. I mean, outside of a few few more gray hairs than I've been used to seeing in the past, physically feel pretty good, which is great, despite all the wear and tear that was put on my body. I certainly don't strap the pads on anymore. That's uh, that's not feasible, even though mentally I think I can. But yeah, as far as the big four O goes, I think uh, my wife has been planning a little trip out to Napa and we'll go out there and spend some time, which will be great. Enjoy some warm weather. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's just a number right now in my head. Physically, I think I can do anything. Well, fabulous. On to the next part of your career. And let's talk a little about that. You do have a podcast, The Walls Within. What is your podcast about and how are you enjoying doing it? Uh, it's been great. So little uh, backstory on that. My co-host is Dave Bailillo. He's a current F-35 pilot in the U.S. Air Force. Soon to retire, I believe, this summer on the date. I'm not exactly sure. But so we met online and, and what happened was David reached out right now. Um, a big part of my coaching career is in sharing experiences that I had throughout that professional career. So Dave reached out to me. We, we had a lot in common in regards to just sharing stories that had similar themes regarding our careers. And, you know, the underlying theme of the podcast is the mental hurdles that we face on the way to elite performance. So I share some of the stories that maybe aren't the most pleasant, but, um, you know, whether that's dealing with my anxiety in, in regards to getting ready for hockey games or certain aspects of my career where I was put on waivers, traded, what have you, I, I, I just try and put it all out there. So, Dave has a lot of similar stories and, and what we're trying to do is kind of share our message. But at the same point now, we're branching out, trying to do interviews with people from all walks of life to just kind of really put some good stories out there that hopefully the listeners can take something from it. Excellent. Well, where can we best follow you and the podcast and, and any other projects that you're working on? Uh, so you can pick it up on any Spotify or Apple podcast. It is The Walls Within. There is an Instagram page that we don't do a fabulous job of maintaining, but uh, I try and put up a bunch of my personal stuff on my own Instagram and just kind of share that. Great. To close off, Curtis, I am absolutely going to put you on the spot. I, I know I'm not going to put you on the spot for who you're cheering for because that wouldn't be fair, but going into game five with the Leafs up three to one and on the verge of their first playoff round victory in 19 years, who is going to win? Are the Leafs going to close it out, or are we going seven games, and what do you see happening? Oof. I think the first priority is going to be 
that Tampa's going to have a push. And, you know, as I mentioned, Toronto has added some veteran players and, and not just one or two. There seems to be three or four newer ones in that lineup that I think will be able to help that group who's already matured overcome that push. And if they can do that, they should win that game at home. So I'm saying it should be wrapped up in game five. It's just a matter of whether they can kind of hold off Tampa's push at the beginning of that game to fight back into the series. Excellent. You heard it here first, people, and your humble host will back up Curtis. I think they're going to close it out at home. Curtis, I want to thank you for your time today and enjoy everything you're working on, and I want to wish you continued success going forward. All right. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Curtis McElhinney, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.